This is a true story. The events depicted in this podcast episode took place in Copenhagen in 2016. At the request of the survivors, the names have been changed. Out of respect for the dead, the rest has been told exactly as it occurred. Welcome to the Holmes Movies Podcast. My name is Anders Holmes, and I'm an aspiring filmmaker living in Copenhagen, Denmark. In between making short films and writing screenplays that will never see the light of day and unsuccessfully looking for jobs, I do this podcast. Each episode, we pick one particular film and discuss it. Uh, Today, I am joined over Skype by Adam. Hello, coming at you over the airwaves from London. Good to have you back on the show and it was very nice to see you last uh, last time when you were here in in denmark last week yeah, it was very nice very nice weekend we had too and um i enjoyed the last episode i don't listen to all of them but i listened back to that one because i thought what i couldn't really remember it was seemed really unstructured and i was like oh god did we just record something awful so i listened to it it was actually really good fun i, th- I thought it was a good episode mm. i'm writing my own reviews now this is a good podcast <laughs> we're the best we talk movies yes we do um did but, uh, you go see Eye in the Sky in the cinema? Not yet. Not yet. I um, I want to go see it tomorrow, maybe, or um, sometime this week. Did you go to the cinema recently? No. I got back. What was it? I got back Monday night. Yeah, there was football in the week. Thursday night, I went to the launch of a perfume. What? Yeah. So, I, okay, I am not a hipster. I am not cool. I don't get to go to things. Did you and go I don't with go- Bob? No, no, God, no, not with Bob. Bob's even less likely to go anywhere near a perfume. Bob never even wears anything with a scent in it. Bob just smells of cigarettes and coffee. Um, but, like, so anyway, Matt's my flatmate. His yeah. friend invites him to this thing. And he's like, oh, I can't go take Adam. So so, I, so I'm, I'm told to show up at this very nice restaurant in, um, in East London for what I'm told is going to be cocktails and snacks. But we get cocktails, which are okay, and snacks. And then there's also all this PR around this launch of this new perfume thing. And I'm not going to give it publicity here, but it was very funny because you got this sort of very camp sort of German guy explaining what the perfume was. And then this really earnest, like, hipster bartender was like, oh, I've matched all these cocktails to go with the perfume. And um, all the time I'm just standing there being like, this is fucking ridiculous, drinking my cocktail. But then we got a goodie bag at the end. All of this is free. Mm-hmm. All of this is totally, and, and they because clearly everyone who gets invited to this is some kind of social media person, mm-hmm. and so there's you know but um, but Matt's friend there she had a plus one and so I was there and so I would love the idea of all these people coming up and be like are you enjoying the event and I was like yes and I'm not going to tweet about it <laughs> and even if I did no one would know because I have like three followers, um, <laughs> so I was like I'll take your I'll take my free goodie bag which has like body wash in it and some sprays i was like i'll take that thank you very much i'll take another one of those canapes so that was that was quite good fun but yeah i know but that's one of the reasons why i haven't been to the cinema yeah i did go to the cinema what did you go see i went to go see the new jungle book directed by john favreau does it have like robots in it or something? No, it's um, basically the the kid who plays Mowgli. It's his first movie that he's ever acted in. Generally, I thought he did a very good job because he's practically the only human in the film, and he's acting alongside 
computer-generated animals. And I have to say, he did a very good job acting alongside of basically nothing, which, you know, when they were making it, and just the way that the the computer, you know, the visual effects artists, the way they recreate this world, and they create this world that's realistic, and it's cool, and it breathes, and it's and it's amazing. Like, everything that they go into it, with, like, rendering everything from the, the trees, the leaves, the bugs around and everything, to Baloo's fur, everything is just... And was like, it so richer? Did it feel more, like, tactile almost? Yeah, and there was... You could just see the depth of everything, and it almost just felt like they took this kid, made him look like the animated version of Mowgli from the 1960s Disney film, and just put him out in the jungle and just made him act alongside all these various different animals. And your and your belief and that works for your belief system in the film. And you just believe that all these animals were real. And I and I I don't know. I mean, because it tugged at my heartstrings a little bit because I really like all that Disney stuff. And I've always been a fan of all those movies, including the original Jungle Book and The Lion King. And there's a few references to it in that. So it, it ticked all the lot of the boxes. And I was kind of worried about it when they said that they were going to do it. And I was kind of hoping that. You know, it, it, they shouldn't really remake stuff, and I didn't. I just, I think, I think they did a very good job. I'm not saying it's my favorite film of the year, but I was very surprised of how good it was. And I think the vocal performances were great. Bill Murray stole the whole film as Baloo. Like there's what, like just the way he just is introduced into the film is just, it's so good. They do very well at making sure that the personality of the actor and who the actor is fits well with the animation so it fits. So it looks like that, like it's like their spirit animal or something and it works very well in that sense. And you could really see that and every one of the characteristics of like, you know, for Bill Murray fits well with the bear. Idris Elba for Shere Khan was great. I like Idris Elba a lot. He's in another film coming out called Bastille Day, which looks like a very silly thriller with um, Rod Stark from Rob Stark from Game of Thrones. Um, I think it's set in London. It just looks like very explodey and fun. So yeah, I might try and film. do that. Yeah. Mm. No, but I, I, I actually, I was very surprised. I, I actually did get a bit teary-eyed in one moment because Lupita. You're always fucking crying over sentimental nonsense. No, it's this this bit where Lupita Nyong'o plays the wolf that's raised. Uh, that's raised uh, Mowgli, and he has to go away because Shere Khan has threatened him. And there's this moment where she, it's it's raining, it's quite moody and emotional, and she's saying like all this stuff because he has to go to the, the the humans now because they will protect him. Ben Kingsley, who plays Bahira, he's going to take him along, which was also good casting as well. And she says something along the lines like, "No matter where you go, and like no matter what they say to you, you will always be my son." And I don't know why, but I got I had to look away from this couple that was sitting next to me in the cinema, so because I was I was teary eyed, so I just had to like sit, stretch myself into the aisle just to wipe my tears away. Oh, for fuck's sake! <laughs> actually, I mean, the, the other funny part of that film was is actually a fight broke out during the movie in the public. You see, we're European. We don't do mass shootings, but we do <laughs> just love a good fight. No, what? But... Why was there a fight in the Jungle Book? Well, okay. The, okay. The, 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 the... <laughs> I, I don't agree with these visual effects. I think they shouldn't use motion capture. I think they should... <laughs> basically, <laughs> what, basically what happened, I was seated... I was in the big big cinema Palace, in which for people who are in Copenhagen will know it's the big colourful cinema that's near the train station. I was sitting sort of towards the left side of the of of the audience in the in the stalls, and she was sitting towards more the right. She? She it was a she. Oh my goodness! No, so it was a girl fight. No, it was a girl fight. No, okay, well, okay. This is where you know you know when you go to the cinema, the golden rules: shut up and turn your phone off. Yeah, both of which I break on a regular basis. Yeah, Danes are not good people to go to the cinema with because they will 
pretty much comment throughout the entire film. It didn't bother me. Oh, that's so annoying. It doesn't bother me that much. Like there was a few people behind me that did it and stuff like that. I just, you know, I, I kind of, I was already lost in the film, so it was fine. But during a scene, (laughs) you're you're already in tears. (laughs) I was already, I was already in the movie, but the moment where I got instantly taken, I got taken out of the film and this was in the good bit. And this is when Baloo is introduced into the film. A woman, I think in her like thirties and twenties steps up and basically says very loudly so the whole room can hear her, hear her, hear her. And she basically just said to some people behind her and just said, in, in Danish, but I'm going to say in English, she just basically said, shut the fuck up, I'm tired of hearing this shit. And then the guy who she was shouting at, this went on for a couple of seconds, and then the guy behind her, he was just like, why don't you just try not to listen? And she shut up for the entire film. And then towards when, during the ending credits, because you know in old Disney films where they they open up the book for the story and then at the end of it, the book closes and then it starts dancing and then it goes into like this weird pop-up dancing thing where Christopher Walken as King Louis starts singing, Opie-do, I want to be like yo. Oh, wow. Christopher Walken. And, it's Christopher uh, Walken. I love Christopher Walken. He was great. I think there's a moment when he, like, when he's introduced into the film. You know, Cowbell. They had a reference to that because Mowgli picks up a cowbell and he starts ringing it, and then King Louis shows up out of the darkness. I was pretty much. I feel like I, I was like this in the cinema. I was just rocking back and forth, being like, "Yeah, I love it." And I was the only person that got that. such a fucking nerd. So, so. Continuing well, on, continuing on from there, during the ending credits, so basically lights have gone on, people have stepped up, and some are about to leave, but now have stopped to see this little thing going on and seeing who else was in the film. I stayed because I wanted to see who the rest of the cast was and who was the cinematographer, mainly from, like, so I can be like, oh, he was really good. And so As I, if you hadn't looked that up before. Basic, no, no, I didn't look up before. Actually, I forgot that that's more truthful. And so what happened was this woman, she was with a group of people, and there was another group of people who were This is the shut the fuck up woman. This was the shut the fuck up woman. And what happened was, during this moment when people were getting up and just watching this little fun little moment with Christopher Walken singing, she she started the fight again. But this time she wasn't, you know, using her mouth. She was using fists. Wow. And attacking, like... I think she was the only person kind of, like, making a fuss. And I think whoever her boyfriend or friends were, they were trying to hold her back. And the guys who she was picking a fight with, they were just like, whoa, what the fuck, just back away kind of thing. And, and like, everybody was turning around and watching it. It almost looked like a West Side Story fight about to happen. And, like, it was kind of embarrassing. Like, there was a woman with her kids, and she was trying to get them out of the cinema as quickly as possible. And it was just like, it's a fucking kids movie. (laughs) It is terrible that people... There is a, that it's it's in that that very entitled uh, attitude that a lot of Danes seem to have, and a lot of Europeans and Americans in general. It's just, you know, of course I can sit at the cinema and talk at the top of my lungs. I paid for these seats. It's like, well, yeah, but you're a garbage person. But and the obviously, is, the, the solution to that isn't to start throwing punches. No, uh, no of course not. Maybe alcohol was a was a factor in this. I, I don't know. imagine it probably was. Yeah, probably no, was. Anyway, people are fucking idiots. I thought like I wanted to talk about uh, an article that just came up uh, a few days ago, just as a way of segueing into the film that we're going to talk about today. Have you heard of the HBO TV show Vinyl? Yes, I have. Yeah, for, for people who don't know, Vinyl uh, is the TV show created by Terence Winter and Martin Scorsese and Mick Jagger. And it's set during the 1970s rock and roll scene and Bobby Cannavale is the lead in the show. 
And I came across an article which was on Vulture.com, and the title was What HBO's Vinyl Shakeup Tells Us About the Network's Drama Problem. And basically okay. what Are you just about to read me an article? No, I'm not about to read you an article. I'm just going through what the article sort of says. And basically what happened was Vinyl is in its first season. It has been renewed for a second season. But the problem is the show has not uh, garnered enough buzz or viewers, and the show is going a little bit rock into sort of rocky territory and recently terence winter the showrunner has either he's been stepped he's he's stepped down due to creative differences or they fired him to replace him with somebody else and basically i mean judging by the caliber of the people who were involved you would think that this would have been a surefire hit for um hbo but the thing is about tv shows as well is that they can you know they can get more uh, audiences later on like you know look at yeah. something that- but Deadwood they, wasn't particularly popular when it was on, but then later on it became this absolute, you know, cult thing with people buying the box sets and, you know, furious that the show was cancelled. Um, you know, these things do deserve more time. I And, and no, no TV shows get a great rating nowadays because no one sits and watches network television. There is so much choice that it, those, those kind of, you know, audience shares or whatever you want to call it isn't as yeah. relevant as it once was. Like, I mean, I do agree with that. I mean, if you look at The Wire as well, that had very low ratings and people were thinking that was going to get cancelled after one season but it went on to go on to five seasons and is probably yeah. one of the greatest TV shows of all time you just need to give it, to give these things a chance yeah I mean it is I mean it's not it's not like there are any problems with you know changing showrunners and stuff like that maybe people go on and do different things and being like I'm going to step down and I think the guys who are coming after me are good but it does seem like HBO has a lot sort of going for had a lot sort of riding on vinyl what the article was talking about is that HBO has kind of been going through problems creatively. I mean, don't get me wrong. The show, it's not like the network is falling down. They've got Game of Thrones and everything like that. But a lot of other shows in the sort of drama section, like True Detective was very big in its first season, but then its second season was not very well received. Uh, shows like The Leftovers had a bit of a slow you know, love with the critics and newsroom Aaron Zorkin's show only lasted for three seasons. And it just, and you know, there were the, the articles that I read also on IndieWire, they were sort of bringing up like Game of Thrones is nearly finished basically. And so is Girls. That's in its fifth season. And then it's going to, yeah, be- these kind of big se- big series. Yeah. Like they're, what they're trying to do is they're trying to have a show that will take Game of Thrones as mantle. And so far they haven't found that. I mean, vinyl is what, like set in the seventies. Yeah, and it's it's a small urban base. I know something like Game of Thrones is going to be is going to need to be replaced by something that has the sweep of something. Not saying it needs to be epic swords and and dragons and stuff like that, but it you know when you think about these huge HBO shows like The Sopranos and The Wire and Game of Thrones, it doesn't matter what it is, but they, it is kind of a world building thing. It is a huge yeah. sprawling thing where there you know lots of characters, lots going on. But it's something they, that everybody can get on board, yeah. basically. But I think, like, if you look at HBO, especially with The Sopranos, that was a show that really started this new trend of TV Yeah, in the late 90s. But I think if you look at some shows now, we're into sort of a new revolution. Places like network, uh, not network, um, Netflix and Amazon Prime. There, there's a lot more creative freedom for them, like the showrunners, to do the things that they want to do without having people breathing down their necks. I mean, HBO is sort of in competition with that, and they're trying many different. They've been, they've been trying for the last few years trying to do. Uh, they've been trying to do Westworld, this new futuristic based off. The film, yeah, no, I know which what. was going to be released this year, but has stopped production. 
And they've done that for a lot of shows. Like David Fincher was going to do one with Rooney Mara, but they were like halfway through filming it. And then people behind the scenes were like, uh, we need to stop and redevelop this and change things around. And now David Fincher, who started House of Cards, well, directed the first two episodes. He's now gone back to another show. And it's just like there's a lot of behind the scenes them sort of getting cold feet about different shows. And I think... You know, people are going to other places. Like, if you look at Amazon Prime with, like, Transparent, that TV show about uh, the transgender uh, transgender issues, uh-huh. I think there's a lot. It's just, like, there's there's more freedom to do the, those kind of shows, and I think that it's that that's that place for it. It's like a bubble. Well, so that's why HBO should do that. It should yeah. start producing more interesting documentaries, and instead of saying, right, we need to do one massive Game of Thrones-style thing, do yeah. ten smaller things that are all going to be hits, or maybe eight of them or seven of them will be a hit. Um, I mean, yeah, they were. But then you'd be, people will have more freedom of choice, and yeah, I think that's good. Yeah. But I think the key thing with all of this is if you commit to quality, then generally that means your output is going to be okay. It's when you start trying to compromise on budget and on, you know, no, we don't compromise on budget, but compromise for of creativity for reasons of budget and start yeah. sort of thinking the only way we can ever make a hit is by sticking to this one formula. That's when you get into trouble. Um, yeah. you, know, you see that in the history of Hollywood with the studio system and you see it, you know, time and time again, people who have it and then they don't and who try the same thing and it doesn't work or who go in a misguided direction because they lose that they lose the ability to harness what it is that makes great content yeah. or makes great stuff so yeah and losing what you know using you lo- losing what you know the budget they have to tell the story that they want to do so what's this got to do with uh, what we're talking about well the reason i wanted to do is cuz i i mean i like talking about tv and tv is you know it's it's still a very big thing cuz people are always like you know tv's become more important not more important but people are more interested in tv than films and what i was asking you is what sort of TV's shows um, have sort of stood out for you in the last sort of five years? Well, let's see. True Detective was very good. Mm-hmm. I like Game of Thrones. Breaking Bad, I I never fell in love with, mm-hmm. but it, it was obviously very, you know, seminal and there was a lot of good stuff there. I can understand why. We've had some good telly over here as well. Some, some Sometimes a bit hit and miss, like London Spy that came out last year was... Pretty good, but the ending was wasn't great. But the big one, um, the big one for me is Fargo. I really fell in love with that show because it was announced that they were doing a TV show based off the film. I was a bit skeptical about it. Yeah, oh, I, I thought so too. I was terrified that they were going to remake the film as a television show. And it's like, well, that's not good. No, because it deserves to be told over two hours. That doesn't mm. work. Um, Which is what they you, tried to do once. But then what they do is they take that universe and they just start making um yeah making films within this yeah fargo universe and what's great about the second series of fargo is that then they even get get rid of the sort of temporal limitations and they go back in time to the 1970s they make a multi-generational story it's, mm. it's really good really fantastic yeah stuff. i mean i like the idea from what i've read with noah holy who um created the show it's like he has this idea of like i he imagines someone reading a book of all these true crime stories in Minnesota, like this Minnesota crime book. And he's mm. creating like a little like crime saga out of this universe that, you know, started with the Coen brothers film. Absolutely. So what, what about, but before we move on to talk about Fargo, which yeah. I guess is the film we're talking about. What about you television wise? Um, five years. I mean, recently the show that, I mean, the, the show that I really like is, I mean, I really loved Breaking Bad. I think that yeah. I think that show spoke to me 
like I think in every sort of aspect, like from the style to the writing and the acting, I think it just it just I really fell in love with that show from the from the get go. Um, I've been sort of trying to watch a lot of like shows on Netflix. Like I liked Master of None with Aziz Ansari. Walking Dead, I really like. House of Cards, I'm slowly trying to get into, but I'm I don't know. I'm not as I'm not a huge fan of it. But no, but as you do, I love Fargo, and I would like to see the second season. Mm, it's brilliant. So the film uh, Fargo, which is a Coen Brothers film, I would have to looking at their sort of filmography beginning with Blood Simple and going up towards Fargo, I think Fargo was the film that really was their big, big success. It brought them into the mainstream. It brought them into the mainstream, because if you look at films like Blood Simple, that was a very indie film, and that put them on the map a little bit on the indie circuit. Also, just worth saying as a sidebar, Blood Simple, very good film. Very good film. And then Raising Arrow showed them that they have a very quirky sense of humour and can do weird... Uh, comedy films and then they did Miller's Crossing which was a little different a bit of an epic uh, gangster film what a beautiful film a very beautiful film and then they did Barton Fink which is a little different I don't know I can't really class what Barton Fink really is it's 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 a thriller it's a drama it's a lot of it's a lot of different things and there's a lot of symbolism into it it's just you know I mean if you look at like Hail Caesar I think Barton Fink is like the beginning and that sort of like Hollywood thing that they were sort of doing but I would say Barton Fink is a lot is a lot better. And then they did the Hudsucker Proxy, which is a very which you've not seen, have you? No, I've not seen Barton Fink either. Barton Fink, I'd watch more than the Hudsucker Proxy. The Hudsucker Proxy is a very obscure film and one that has a lot of these. It's sort of reminiscent of nineteen thirties comedy films, and it's very. There's not a real strong story in it. And I think that's sort of you know it's hard to do sort of it's kind of falls into that category with lady killers and hail caesar it's like why yeah they're capable of dropping the ball sometimes on the story front getting too lost in their own kind of noodly world and and you know god bless them they can't get it right every time yeah i mean that film is more of like it's kind of you know if you look at something like uh bringing up baby it's in that kind of category that sort of you know not sketchy screwball 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 comedy but it, it doesn't have the same effect like bringing up baby did Oh, what a film that is! Uh, and uh, and Fargo was the film that really, you know, it, it set the stage for the you know the rest of their career and really put them up into the mainstream. And then they did the Big Lebowski after that, and then they did. Was that the one that followed? Yeah, they so, followed, uh, they yeah. Fargo is ninety five, isn't it? And Big Lebowski is ninety seven. Yeah, Fargo was uh, ninety six actually, and then oh sorry, ninety eight was Big Lebowski, and then they did Oh Brother What Thou, the man who wasn't there, and then Lady Killers and so forth. And Fargo is a is a wonderful film. It's dark, it's funny, it's very well written, and it has... So original. It's well. so original as well. It's just like... It's, it's insane. And, like, yeah. I like I like the fact it begins with, this is a true story, this yeah, is what yeah, happened. Yeah. And, and, and they sort of, that's kind of... And people almost believe that. Well, there was the famous story of... Um... I think it was a Japanese lady who went looking oh, for, yeah, 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 yeah. for the money that goes missing in the film, thinking it was a true story and froze to death looking for it or something terrible. It's actually, if that's an urban legend. Or... It's actually a lot tragic and than that, actually. A lot more tragic. A lot more tragic. It. Um, I read this article, which was on The Telegraph, because there was a film that came out a couple of years ago called, uh, I think it was called Kumiko, The Treasure Hunter, and it was about a woman looking for the treasure that was buried at the end of Fargo, well, the money that was buried at the end of Fargo. But what happened was, was the woman from Japan, I think it was a little bit, 
sad with her because what happened and what someone found out about was that she was trying to go to the place that her a person that she was in love with was from, which was Fargo. And it was someone who she who was a businessman who met her in Tokyo and left her and didn't really want anything to do with her and lived and went and moved to Singapore. And she and she went there and a few people saw her. She was sort of it was like an urban legend, like sighting like Bigfoot, like people would see her like going up a hill or something. And one family like said, look, it's a witch or something. And this, is in Fargo now. this was in Bismarck in Bismarck, North Dakota. Mm-hmm. And she died. Uh, she, I think she committed suicide. Wow, it was really, really sad. I was, I was, I was looking up at it now, and that. So it doesn't. So that didn't actually have anything to do with the. the I mean, I mean, when when people were like trying to ask her, "What are you doing?" Like she didn't speak English. She, she was she, all that. All that she really said was just Fargo. Like she was trying to get to there, which was where that person was from. She actually sounds like a character in Fargo. Pretty much, like in in this universe, it's what she. This, I mean, I know it's not not. Obviously, I don't want to make light of the situation, but it is you know, coming back to the film is that blend of the tragic and then the surreal because you know it is a sad. Yeah, it's, it's sad. In, in some ways, it's an incredibly sad film because everything is so. This world is and this life that some of these characters leave is just so melancholy and mundane it, and uh, yeah and, and you know and you know you have marge gunderson getting home at the end of the film who she sits down uh she's she cracks the case she's done everything and uh her husband who like paints ducks for a living and has you know designed this postage stamp he's like i got the stamp and she's like oh yeah well done no, well done, you. <laughs> like that's, I, I solved that's a big the, achievement in this. You know, I solved a triple murder case. <laughs> and then, the, yeah, exactly. And then everyone else, you know, you've got a family who've been torn apart. To, mm. You know, dead. You know, most of them died because of one guy. Because <laughs> what's his name? Uh, Jerry Lundergaard. Jerry Lundergaard. Because uh, of his wild incompetence. Um, but it's that sort of random, the random things that can make plans go wrong so early on. And and the sort of coincidences and the weird juxtapositions that just inevitably happen that that brings the humour out in all of this. Mm. And because obviously, so many of the characters who do meet grisly ends are completely impossible to sympathise with. Yeah, I mean the I mean the person the closest person that we have to a hero is Marge Gunderson, and she's sort of the the person who you know solves the whole thing and i think i like you know there's i mean what you were talking about with scenes of coincidence and stuff you know the scene where she meets her old high school friend uh the japanese guy yeah can't remember his name uh yana mike yanagida yeah that guy yeah in the hotel bar yeah in the hotel bar. Scene, yeah. and that's a very sad scene but also it almost feels like a from my from my point of view when i watched it the first time that felt more like a throwaway scene when I first watched it, but it's actually quite an important scene and shows that the Coens are very good writers and it feeds well into the story because what happened for people who've seen the film, um, uh, Marge meets her old classmate, this uh, Japanese guy who almost tries to seduce her. And she's talking about how uh, another classmate of theirs who was mar- who apparently was married to him died. And then she calls up somebody else and says that, oh, she's not dead. She's living somewhere else. Apparently, he's been, like, stalking her and, and stuff. And he's living mm-hmm. with his, his mother. Very tragic. And and then the next scene. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you see um, Marge driving around and just getting burgers and stuff. And you see that it's weighing on her mind and stuff. And then she goes back to see Jerry Lundergaard for a second time because she feels like, if I was convinced by Mike's lies... Maybe Jerry Lundergaard was lying. 
I've never thought about it like that before. Yeah. That's I just, really, you're right. That is good writing. I, that is interesting. I've not made that connection that she. It's like because of the Midwest, everyone is so trusting, and yeah, you, kind of when you first meet her, you do sort of. The audience is meant to assume that she's a bit of a bumpkin, I suppose. Uh, so she's kind of folksy and she's pregnant as well. She just mm. feels really sort of vulnerable and and totally uncynical. Uh, yeah. But it says it. Yeah, you're right. It's as if that scene gives her the impetus to to go do that. Yeah, she just sort of like sits there and thinks about it. She doesn't like, I don't know, just sits around and drives and just randomly says to Jerry Lundergaard, being like, hi, I'm going to go, bye. Like, you know, throughout, I mean, Frances McDormand, who won an Academy Award, I mean, it's such a, she's such a delightful presence in this film and she's so funny and like just really good. Like all these moments where he's like, so are you going to tell us who, who you were calling, huh? <laughs> yeah she's great she's fantastic in that movie um the the cast in general are wonderful i think that the um william h macy and steve buscemi obviously stand out and you know you have uh, peter stabaro just plays you know peter stabaro just the big angry swedish guy Hank's <laughs> what, pancake what pancakes house, house. Yeah. <laughs> i'm fucking hungry now yeah I like. Uh, I mean, the beginning scene of the film, which apparently takes place in Fargo, and the only place that takes place in Fargo, even though the film is called Fargo, wasn't actually filmed in Fargo, which I thought was oh, quite right. funny. And I like that beginning scene because it almost foreshadows the problems you're going to see with Jerry and uh, is it Carl? Yeah, Carl Stolwalter, uh, Steve Buscemi's character. Like, there's sort of things where he says, "Like, you were supposed to be here at seven thirty. What gives, man? Chet told me eight thirty. He said 7.30. We've been sitting here an hour. He's peed three times already. <laughs> I love it. And like, I just love the beginning scene. Like, It just sets the stage for such a weird story because it's about a guy hiring two people to kidnap his wife and her wealthy father and his, well, her wealthy father pays the ransom. Yeah. What and then could possibly go wrong? Yeah. yeah, exactly. And obviously it all goes... Yeah, it does all go wrong. But I love... I love, the, the, I love watching him squirm. Mm. Um... There are so many great scenes where he, you know, he is just so crap at being a human being. He's, yeah. he's a terrible father. He's an awful husband. He's, he's bad. He's like he's terrible at his job. He's a crook. And he's yeah. And he's exactly. He's 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 a use. He's a salesman. He's a car salesman who can't really do it properly. And no one likes him. That's the, it, it's mm. so. And this is it informs really um, Martin Freeman's character in um, Fargo season one. In the, in the first season of Fargo, Jerry Lundegaard. Um, oh, no, Mr. Nygaard. Mr. Nygaard, sorry, sorry. They're very similar. Uh, yeah, They act alike uh, as well, and they wear the same. Yeah, they are. He is very similar to, to William H. Macy. And, it, and you sort of feel so bad for him, and, and, and you, you're just like, oh, of course, he just wants to... And, he, and it's this thing where he, all his life, he's this passive guy who's just sort mm. of done his shitty job. He asks if someone's got spare tickets to the game. They don't. And then all of a sudden, he concocts the most insane plan it's like he goes from idling in first gear to like racing down the highway at a million miles an hour it's like there's no it's, really it's just like right that's it the only thing i can do now is stage the kidnapping of my own wife my favorite scene in the film it's also that bit where he you think everything's going to go well for him and he goes to meet his father-in-law and his partner yeah and that he is says like so these numbers group. are pretty good jerry so where's your uh what's your finder's fee Huh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then he it goes just, out. He's like, thanks he's... for showing us how to make some money for ourselves. You're not going to get anything. And then he flips, he's scraping ice off his car and he just sort of has this massive tantrum where he starts chucking the ice scraper around. It's so funny. 
Yeah. And it's so, so funny. But also so deeply sad because it's that thing of like, oh, you you know, you're at the end of your tether and you've got to scrape ice off the fucking car. And then you flip out and throw the ice thing around. And then he picks it up and has to keep scraping. And he has to keep well. doing it. Yeah. It's almost like a bit of a metaphor for his life because he has to just keep doing it and just keep going yeah. on and stuff. And like, even though he tries to have a take a shortcut with trying to make more money and then it just falls apart by the end of the film. And then he's arrested for orchestrating this weird... Yeah. This weird thing. Like, pretty much, okay, he's arrested. Three people are killed when Carl and Gar Grimswood are pulled over and set stage for, you know, Marge being introduced in the film. Uh, the father in law dies, and then the wife dies as well, and one she's kidnapped. So it's just, it's that scene at the end of the film when Marge is driving Peter Samari away, and she's just like, So that was uh, Mrs. Lundergaard there on the floor. And that was your partner in the wood chipper. <laughs> and the three people in Brainerd. And all for what? Just a little bit of money. I love that. She gives him a bollocking. She's almost like a mom in that film, a mom. Yeah, she is. She is yeah. I just love that. She's not just sort of... She's, she just doesn't like, you know, like, you know, not like American police officers when you see them in films. They're just like, you're going to go down and stuff. You're just like, you're right to remain silent, buddy. But she sort of just sits there and like in, in the most like pleasant way but you know sort of telling him off and that kind of you, you've you've brought this on yourself just for, for money and she's just like i don't understand all this stuff and no it's that it's, she still is she still has enough of that lack of cynicism and, and mm. belief in 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 the goodness of the world you know the world that should be a good place that's yeah. why she lives in the midwest i suppose but it's almost um, like with her with her with um with norm at the end of her film her husband they're just sort of saying like the last sort of lines that she says to him is like you know we're doing pretty well norm Mm. and then like two more months yeah, God, yeah all things considered yeah. she's certainly seen what doing not well looks like mm. um, yeah I, I think it's also a, I was it um, was it Roger Deakins who did the cinematography yeah Roger Deakins was the cinematographer on this, this it was, is so so beautiful it's isn't very it? beautiful uh, why, why he's on the road for well. this film I don't know <laughs> You know, the Oscars hate Roger Deakins for some reason, and I'm sure he hates them right back. But we know he's brilliant, and, um, you know, one of the best cinematographers of all time, arguably. Mm. And um, and he does a fantastic job in Fargo of, you know, know, those great long shots of these dark roads and the snow, and, yeah, no, it's wonderful. Yeah, and I think the way they recreate that same atmosphere, that bleak, middle of nowhere America does they they recreate that very well in the first season of, of Fargo yeah the second one looks good as well both yeah. both seasons of the show uh have just as much of an aesthetic um you know just as aesthetically pleasing as the as the film is and, and use the landscape mm-hmm. in the same way uh, what is your favorite Coen Brothers film? And it can't be. Didn't this. we talk? We talked about this in the Big Lebowski one. I, I don't know what I said then. Yeah, I can't I, remember what I, I said. I and I think like, it's one of those things that changes every time. Mm. Um, and I, I, I do think it's it's No Country for Old Men, but I, I'm not 100 percent sure. I, I, it's probably the Big Lebowski because it's yeah. it's my it is the funnest one. Is I quote it all the time. I don't think a day goes by where I don't like something doesn't remind me about something from the Big Lebowski. Yeah. Um, so in terms, I, I guess I'd put it this way: favorite Big Lebowski, best, be a toss-up for me between No Country for Old Men and Fargo, maybe. Although, yeah, and and if I was, I was listening to a podcast recently where they were talking about, you know, if you if you really know about a particular set of things, like for example, Beatles albums or mm. uh, Martin Scorsese films or something, you know, you think, right, what's the best? What's my favorite? And what's the thing I would recommend to someone? 
who was just who'd not seen any of them before. Yeah. So with the Coen brothers, I think I would say my favorite would be The Big Lebowski. The best would be No Country for Old Men. And we, and actually, maybe I'd say if you if you're not, if you haven't seen the Coen brothers and you really just want to see what it's all about, watch Fargo. Yeah, definitely. But uh, but you, you know that that's that could change. You ask me again tomorrow, and I have a completely different opinion because it just so entirely depends on what kind of mood I'm in. But it, yeah, you're choosing between things that are just inherently brilliant. You know, they're all equally. The three good. films I just mentioned. This isn't even getting around to. We haven't even mentioned True Grit or um, you know Blood Simple, Raising Arizona, other great movies. Man who wasn't there. The man who wasn't there, which I wouldn't put up as high as some. You of wouldn't the other put it up as high. No, no, not as fucking Fargo. No, no, no. it's it's way below that. I'd, I'd say it was about the same level as something like. Um, it's 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 not as good as Blood Simple, but it's getting there. I would say my favorite would be this one, Barton Fink, and I think on a sort of like personal level, I would say No Country for Old Men as well. Yeah, where where you put the Big Lebowski then? Maybe just after No Country for Old Men, so like mm. four. I mean, what sort of? I mean. You know, when Pulp Fiction came out, there was always, like, these sort of imitators of, like, Tarantino and stuff. Which, what sort of film do you, or, like, director do you think maybe took the inspiration from Fargo into his film? Or do you, do you see, like, that those sort of characteristics in another film that's similar to this? I'm not sure about the, uh, about Fargo specifically. I mean, I know that the Coen's, um the zaniness of the code like the, the fact is that you know in all the modern in, in westerns that get made now westerns yeah. that, oh, um, so for example I think uh, you know a film like The Homesman brings in a few elements of the Coen brothers so and actually funny enough so this is Tom, so Tommy Lee Jones you could say is an example because I also think The Three Burials of Melchiadas Estorada yeah. is a film that uh, you could definitely see as a companion piece to yeah. No country for old men. So I think you could see that in. I'm not sure. You know, it'd be quite tempting to say, "Oh, look how similar they are to, for example, Wes Anderson." I mean, they use a lot of similar people, and they have those kind of zany. They have a zaniness that Wes Anderson shares. Mm-hmm. But, and I'm sure he's. I'm sure that they will mutually admire each other. Sure, uh, but I think that the, the Wes Anderson is much more style driven and they're much more dialogue driven. Ultimately, I think they're better filmmakers than he is. Um, the Coen brothers and then Wes Anderson. Oh, much better. Yeah. 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 But he, I think there are, there are some overlaps there, aren't there? Yeah. I mean, there was another, I mean, Sam Raimi directed a film called a simple plan. Have you heard of that? Uh, yeah. I've heard With that. Uh, Bill Paxton and Billy Bob Thornton and Bridget Fonda. It's about these three guys living in in a similar area snowy not much to do and they find a plane with money in it oh so yeah very much like no country for old men yeah yeah so that kind of aspect like what what do they do and billy bob thornton gives a terrific performance in that film i love billy bob thornton. but like the thing i liked about billy bob thornton is that he plays like a sort of a redneck character, but he doesn't play like the stereotypical redneck character. He always brings something to it and that you always, he, he, he basically just plays a person, a different, like he just, he doesn't like bring any stereotypes to it and actually creates this, a lot of depth for each character that he plays. Mm. Like you're always trying to, like he always, there's always so much going on between them, especially when you look at him as Lauren Malvo, there's always like, what is going on inside this guy's head? And I think he's so good at like you, you. You're just wanting to look a little bit closer into the into his character's mindsets, and in, in some in most of the films that he's been in that I've seen. Completely agree with you, Billy Bob. He's one of the great actors, and he's mm. wonderful in, in in Fargo Series One. Yeah. Um, perhaps uh, you wouldn't say Tarantino has had any real 
No, but they're two different don't really share anything. anything. And, and also, he'd already made his good movies by the time this came out. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm sure you'll see it all over the place, um, the influence of stuff like this. I think you certainly see it in, in the Westerns that come out. You know, even... Um, and that's all obviously because Roger Deakins does so much of the cinematography for these yeah. films. That, that, uh, I think actually you, you could say, or you see the Coen brothers' influence in the films that he works on, well... You know, that's because he brings that visual quality. Rango, for example. Yeah. There's, that's very Cohen's E. Mixed with a little bit of Hunter S. Thompson. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. But, wow, what a film Fargo is. Yeah. Fantastic fun. Um, it's, it's, I think, just about perfect. Yeah. I can't think of that many things that are wrong with it. Um, it is a pretty perfect movie. Yeah, and it's so so deeply enjoyable. Very rewatchable as well. Yeah, very rewatchable. It's quite complicated. But for, so first couple of times, you're still getting your head around this crazy plot. Yeah, um, and also it's very tense. Like the first time I watched, I remember it was so I got it was not like scared, but I was very much on edge the entire time because I didn't really know what was gonna. Like, yeah, it's, it's a high stress situation, and so often it doesn't end well. I, I remember the first time I saw the um, the scene of them getting uh, the scene of the two bad guys getting pulled over on the highway. Yeah, that is a, that's a great scene. And the, but that's no, almost like out of a horror film, almost the way that they're yeah. shot with the lighting and everything, and also because it's so dark all the way around, and then you see the car coming from the other side of the road and it's passing and it's just it just and also because Peter Stamari is just like a very haunting serial killer slasher movie kind of villain. Yeah, he's he he's 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 scary, isn't he? Yeah, he he is probably he's a mixture because of, of your Johnson. <laughs> he's a mixture of J.E. Freeman's character and the private eye from Blood Simple. He's a mixture of both. Oh right. I would say he's a mixture of both. Like, I mean, the film says it's based on a true story. Well it is it, it isn't. But there have people have sort of looked into certain similarities and feel like, oh, the Coen brothers were inspired by this, but the Coen brothers have been like, no. And um, there was a guy called T. Eugene Thompson, and he, uh, in 1963, had collected uh, his uh, a $1 million uh, life insurance policy on his wife and basically had hired a hitman to kill her. I'm sure that kind of thing happens all the time, though. Yeah. I mean, not all the time. But in a country as insane as America. But on Where the, was this, then? This was, in, uh, this was in Minnesota. Ah. And also in Minnesota... Minnesota, not so nice. There was a, there was a similar thing that happened in uh, the state of Connecticut. Was uh, There was a, uh, a Danish woman called Hella, Hella Krafts. She was married to an American, American man. And she met her on, she was working as a stewardess and she met her, her husband on an airline flight from Denmark to New York. They married in 1979 and resided in Connecticut and had three kids. But the marriage started to fall apart and he started to see other people. Hmm. And what happened was she went missing. And so what happened, the police came to the residence with a search warrant. Uh, they found a few clues. One was a piece of carpet from their bedroom was removed. Also, the nanny had told the police that the day, a few days before, there was a grapefruit-sized stain on the carpet of the bedroom, but the patch had been removed, and a blood smear was uncovered on the side of the craft's bed, but a body was not found. And what happened was uh, he chopped her up and put her in a wood chipper to get rid of nice. her. Yeah. I and, thought it was going to be, when you were telling the story, I was like, oh, I thought it was going to be like Gone Girl, that she faked it. No, 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 no. She, he actually put her in a wood chipper. There was a guy who was driving. A That's snow, a terrible way to dispose a, of a body. A snowplow driver Is was. Is this going to, like, send 
blood everywhere. Yeah, no, but also they found fragments in the thing. You, you, it's still there. Like yeah. even if you get rid of the body, it's still it's still pretty much there. And um, ah, he was oh, he, so gruesome. He was he was convicted for it, and it was the first uh, murder. Really right, he was. It was the first murder conviction in the state of Connecticut that was. Uh, it was the first one which a, a murder was convicted without a body. Conviction for a murder in the absence of a body, which basically means they would have to. The prosecutors would have to use mostly circumstantial evidence to prove that this person did it. But, so just all the blood around the wood chipper. <laughs> but basically, like, because of forensic science, that's actually, it actually helps in that sense that they don't need a body. They just need to have someone go in with a white light and be like, found some blood. Yeah. But this actually, DNA never lies. Uh, this actually came from something that happened in England. And it was, it was, it's something that started with something called the Camden Wonder. And this occurred in the, 16, uh, in the 1600s, late 1600s. Oh, God, this sounds like it's going to be absolutely mental then. It is. A local official had vanished. And after interrogation, three individuals were hanged for the murder. Sometime afterwards, the supposed victim was alive and well, and he was abducted and enslaved in Turkey. What? So he'd been abducted? Yeah, he'd been abducted, and people had thought that he, he was killed, and these three people were tortured, and, and then they were hanged shortly afterwards. And then he showed up and said, like, Hello! Hi! <laughs> <laughs> I was abducted and put in Turkey. <laughs> I've got some... Yeah, he's, he's already got a great story, and they come back and they're just like, Ew. <laughs> Awkward. It's like, it's like uh, the Oxbow incident. It's like, he's not dead. Yeah. It's been out about. Oh, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh well, it's, um, it, it, I mean the whole. I mean the whole thing with like two Eugene, uh, T. Eugene Thompson, the guy who like hired a hitman to kill his wife. This his whole the, his whole coverage of the of, of his crime was like the O.J. Simpson trial. Wow, and um, and, and it's it's ve- like looking into it. It's very similar to the film because he had a guy who found a hitman to do it, and the guy who they hired was an idiot. Yeah, and he couldn't do his job right. He tried to drown the woman; it didn't work. He tried to shoot her; it, the gun misfired, and then he ended up stabbing the woman. Well, she sounds like Rasputin. Yeah, um, but um, but she was able but she was able to get to a um, a house nearby and tell her what happened before she was rushed to hospital, and then she died three hours later. And then oh he was God. and then he was arrested, and then T. Eugene was sentenced to life, and then uh, spent about nineteen years in prison. Fucking hell. Yeah. So, so, so the true story thing is not so, not yeah. so inaccurate. Not so inaccurate because there have been certain things, but I think the Coen brothers have been like, I mean, it about, was, it was supposed to be that sort of joke. Wasn't yeah. It? it was supposed to be a joke. I mean, it was, it was, a, I mean, it, like Joel Cohen said, we weren't interested in that kind of fidelity. The basic events are the same as in the real case, but the characterizations are fully imagined. If an audience believes that something's based on a real event, it gives you permission to do things they might not otherwise not accept. Yeah, it's true. It's a very good ploy, that one. Yeah. And it is, and it obviously is great fun, and they must have just been delighted that people actually thought it was a true story. Yeah. And also, but, it, it was the first time I've ever heard a Minnesota accent before that. Oh yeah. Well, it's, I think most people in this country and in Europe, or you know, and I think plenty of people in the United States, their idea of Minnesota, like if they have one, their idea of Minnesota comes from this film. Yeah, I mean, at the bar where I work in, I volunteer at here in Copenhagen. There's a girl from Minnesota, and immediately when she said Minnesota, I was like, "Oh, you come from Fargo country." 
<laughs> I bet she loves that. Uh, no, I don't think she did. <laughs> well, to to come back to the film, I think it's a, it's an absolute masterpiece, and yeah. um, it, it, it it yeah, it deserves to be held up as one of the mm. greatest films of the nineteen nineties, and um, and it it really is such a delight. Uh, I, I I absolutely love it. Roger Ebert, it was his fourth favorite film of the nineteen nineties. Yeah, there you go. Called, I think called, I, I think that's justified. And he called it one of the best films I've ever seen, and said that. And he said films like Fargo are why I love the movies. So, recommendations now. Uh, I am going to recommend a film that I saw fairly recently, and that is Dexter Fletcher's directorial debut, Wild Bill. Oh, that's supposed to be really good. It's very good. Very, very good. It's got nothing to do with Wild Bill Hickok, obviously. No, no, it's got nothing to do with Wild Bill Hickok. It's Well, it's kind of... It is a little bit inspired by westerns mainly in the last scene it takes place in a pub and then there's like it, it's it, a fucking shooter yeah it's, it's like truck western okay <laughs> for a fucking shooter it's 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 probably one of the best um uh sort of fisticuff fight scenes i've uh seen in a film fisticuff in a fight scenes this sounds like something out of the 1920s ah sir you're a rapscallion i'm gonna knock your block off no it's a, it's a really good film it's about a Oh, it's about, he's kind of a gangster. He was, he did do work with some drug dealers and it's set during the time when London is just getting ready for the Olympics and you can see all of the construction happening in the background. And he comes out of prison, Bill, and he's called Wild Bill. Hang, hang, hang on, hang on, hang on. This is very similar to a film that you made, to, to, to Final Shot, which we wrote together. Okay, let it, let your it, student film. Did we rip it off without no, okay, knowing? Let, let the record be known. In the first minute of the film, during when you see all the people, the studios behind the film, it starts off with the and then the guys walking out of prison. Fuck! Did you had you seen it when you made it? Okay, let the record be known on the podcast. I had not seen Wild Bill before writing Final Shot. So they ripped us off. Well, the film came out before Final Shot did. So. We're fucked. We're screwed. <laughs> I was watching the film and I was like, I, I was like Biff Tannen in Back to the Future Part 2. I was like, oh, this looks very eerily familiar. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Anyway, so, but it's a good film. I like Dexter Fletcher. I'm really glad he's doing well for himself because he had a bit of trouble because he was a child actor and then he became, then he was, a, he was a young man. He was in Band of Brothers and some Guy Ritchie stuff. And then he had, I think he had some trouble with, with, uh, with drugs and alcohol. But he's on. He's back on the men now. Now he's directing. I don't think he did have any problems with drugs or alcohol. I'm not. Did I make that up? I think he may have made that up. Right. Well, I'm really glad he's doing well anyway because you know I like it when people do well. Tom Hardy was the one who had problems with drugs. Right. I'm a giver, not a taker. Yeah. Um, I like boys. <laughs> Why he did not get an Oscar nomination for that film, I will never. Know. Oh, it's 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 it's, a, it's astonishing. He 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 was so he was so good in that. Um, it's maybe not the best film that's ever made. I actually no. thought it was a really enjoyable gangster film, and he was brilliant. Yeah, very good. But no, it's it's a, like Wild Bill. It's a very feel good film. Like you know when you see these kind of. English, you know, set on a council estate, you know, these hoodie people would be like, oh, I'm going to get you. These hoodie people. <laughs> Sorry. You sound like the fucking Queen Mother. 
But, you know, it, it almost makes fun of those people a little bit. You know, those guys. Rude you know, boys. Rude boys. I believe they're called. Rude boys. <laughs> I'm told. <laughs> and it, it's, you know, it's about a deadbeat dad trying to reconnect with his two kids and put them straight and that stuff. Wow, Bill. I will watch that. I, I have it here and I'll bring it over next time when I'm in London or when you come to Denmark. Cool. Um... I will watch the shit out of that. Right, I'm going to recommend a, a western, an actual western, an actual western um, called because uh, I'm we you know we've kind of drifted away from westerns a little bit. Uh, it's important to remember that I am obsessed with the Wild West and everything associated with it. Wicked, wicked, um, wild, wild. Jesus Christ! Sorry, that was a new low. Um, <laughs> I couldn't resist. Well, anyway, um, it's a film called Blood on the Moon. It stars Robert Mitchum. And it was it's a very interesting film because it's uh it's black and white and it almost has a noirish feel to it. Um and it you know, having Mitchum in that it, it film really helps in that regard. Um and it is just a bog standard range war western, you know, where Mitchum comes in and he is originally just, you know, kinda of, it's almost like a bit like Shane crossed with I don't know, like El Dorado or something. It's just the the bad guys are trying to move in on the small people and Mitchum was on the wrong side first, and then he realizes the error of his ways, and he's on the right side at the end. So, like white hats versus black hats, kind of western. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 completely standard, but it's very well it's very well put together, and um, it has um, Robert Preston and Walter Brennan in it. Um, and it's uh, it's very enjoyable. Um, sort of has a, a slight melancholy to it, like a lot of the best Mitchum westerns, because he has that tired, um, slightly laconic and almost stoned style it probably was stoned um but yeah it's a great a, a really good movie so you should definitely watch that i'll definitely check that out you i either will take it from you next time and i'm in london or you bring it over well that's great i'm glad we got that arranged okay i'm glad we can do these in advance hmm. so birthdays now happy birthday top of the list ben affleck's ex-wife jennifer garner not Jennifer Lopez. No, no, no. The another Jennifer. A little funny story. Have you ever heard of a film called Jersey Girl? Yeah, I've heard of it. Yeah, Kevin Smith directed it. It was like his non-viewers universe film, and uh, Jennifer Jennifer Lopez plays uh, Ben Affleck's wife in the beginning of the film. What uh, the fuck does non-viewers universe mean? Uh, the ones that don't have uh, Jay and Silent Bob in the film. What is a viewers universe? It's his like universe that he's created, and also it was his company that he his production. Oh, viewers Oh, I get it. All right, okay. Sorry, I should have explained that. Yeah. Um, so, and they it was you know if you remember the film Gigli, the box office disaster that ruined their careers a little bit. Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck. Yeah, it was. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I don't remember. I remember it being something that people laughed about. Yeah, it was directed by none other than Martin Brest, who directed. Ah, he's back <laughs> and uh, he directed Beverly Hills Cop and that was the last film that he made and because of that film uh, Jersey Girl got affected by it so because when people saw Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck were going to be in another film the people were like oh shit people are going to expect another Ghibli and no one's going to go see this film so they cut out a lot of her scenes and also didn't use her a lot in the promotional film and spoiler alerts she dies giving birth to their daughter in the film about 10 minutes into the film so they were like getting at her out of the film. But apparently uh, in Kevin Smith's original cut, she was in the film a lot longer and he was brought into a meeting with um, the Weinsteins who were producing the film and they were like, how quickly and how efficiently could you reshoot all of her scenes with a different actor? <laughs> and they said, well, who do you have in mind to replace Jennifer Lopez? And they were like, 
I like Jennifer Garner. Well, yeah, they're completely different people. Yeah, but also because the only thing they have in common is the first name. Yeah, exactly. But it's a really funny story. Like they, they, they sort of like they almost matched them together, and then they got married uh, later, and then they uh, sadly are separated. Uh, got separated last year. Oh, boo hoo! Uh, happy birthday to Rooney Mara. Oh, I like Rooney Mara. She's great. She's very good. She was very good in Carol with um, uh, Kate Blanchett, which I really enjoyed. Oh, I missed Carol. I didn't it's, see it. it's a good film. I, I actually, I, I actually thought it was a very, very good film. Uh, happy birthday to the actor that dies in pretty much every film he does, Sean Bean. Oh, fucking Sean Bean, sharp himself. Or Ned Stark. Ned Stark, yes. Or uh, Alec Trevelyan. That is, he's brilliant. I love Sean Bean. I love Sharp, which I don't know. It's it was it was on British television in the eighties and nineties. It was this hour-long episodes about adventures in the Napoleonic War and it was always Richard Sharp played by Sean Bean encounters opposition in the form of the French you know Napoleon and in the form of posh bastard officers who like muck him about and so he spends the entire episode killing the fuck out of French people humiliating the posh bastard officers and then he finds a girl and shags her and and he does that quite a lot even when he gets married he's all like fucking have a girl yeah like it, he's it, it's so formulaic but so fun mm. um and then and, and it, yeah no we love Sean Bean happy birthday to him he doesn't die in in the Martian. No, but they did make a joke about that. And like you know, in the montage end credit scene when he's golfing with his son, they were sort of writing a scene in where a satellite falls out of the sky on top of him. <laughs> <laughs> I was kind of expecting that to happen. Yeah, uh, it just like it just keels over from a heart attack. <laughs> uh, happy birthday to Adam McKay, the writer director of Step Brothers, Anchorman, and recently the uh, film The Big Short. Uh, happy birthday to Walder Frey himself, David Bradley, who played, uh, very famous for playing, uh, Argus Filch, the groundskeeper in the Harry Potter films, but I guess... I, I've met him. You've met David Bradley? Yeah. Walder Frey? Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I met him, I was, um, I had a friend who was in the second Harry Potter film, I went uh. to the Harry Potter cast party, but I was a child, but I was 13. Mm. So yeah, I was a fucking child. Yeah. And I went, and then we had to leave earlier, so none of the real cast were there yet. But I did meet Daniel Radcliffe and uh, I think Emma Thompson and... Um, Emma Watson. Emma Watson, not Emma Thompson, sorry. Yes, Emma Watson. And I also met Filch, because he was the only one of the senior cast who was there, and he was just busy, like, dancing and being a bit drunk, which was great. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, happy birthday to your favourite actor, William Holden. He's not my number one favorite but he's in the top he's really in the top echelon i love william holden he's in some of my very favorite films and some of the performances that he delivers uh even in films that aren't you know amazing are just he's he's just such a fantastic fantastic actor yeah uh, you know good. lucky that he got to play obviously some incredible characters you know he was cast in uh sunset boulevard that just completely turned his career around and but he he also um, he did some really great roles when he was older, you know. So he did um, the the Wild Bunch, which is which we've talked about um, on He's the great, podcast, and then you know Network, which is a bit of a mess of a film sometimes. But his performance in that, alongside obviously Pete Finch, who won the Oscar, is just uh, incredible. And every film in between, um, yeah, he's uh, he's really one of my favourites. So. Hats off to him. 
Um, well, this guy who's next on the birthday list, uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper, he was a big favorite of many people who were into WWF uh, wrestling. And um, he sadly passed away as well. And he was a big fan favorite of the sort of late 80s period. But I'm a huge fan of his because he starred in one of my favorite action uh, sci-fi films directed by John Carpenter, who did The Thing. Uh, they Live. And he says one of uh, two of my favorite lines in the film, which is, I've come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm <laughs> all out of bubblegum. I've heard that line before. That's yeah. great. I like and, that. And my second favorite line is, you either got two choices. You either put on those glasses or start eating that trash can. <laughs> and then it goes into like one of the longest improvised fisticuff fights of all time. There it again, there it is again, fisticuff fights. It's it's so it's one of the, the best. fist fights, a showtime. It's it's one of the best fist fights ever. <laughs> uh, happy birthday to another fan favorite of mine, Christine. Actually, can I just interject? Yeah. Speaking of great fist fights, terrible film, but with an excellent fist fight, The War Wagon. Oh yeah, very good. Terrible film, brilliant fist fight. Yeah. Anyway, carry on. Uh, happy birthday to uh, this guy. Uh, uh, he's had a very uh, long career. Uh, his name is Paul Thomas, and he's directed many films such as Shared Not Wives. Not Paul Thomas Anderson. No, not Paul Thomas Anderson. He actually Just Paul Thomas. It's, he has, he's he hasn't been Paul, upgraded yet. He hasn't been upgraded. Actually, I think he dropped Paul Thomas Anderson because he didn't want people to confuse him because, well, he has directed many films such as Friends with Benefits, Shared Wives, The Graduate, Triple X, Teases and Pleases, Eight Masseuses, Hang on, hang on, hang on. This this man is a porn man. Yeah. Well, well I don't he, know what to say. We don't really have porn people on this. Uh, this is actually quite funny. This is a bit of trivia I've had for him. He's been, was a feature performer in hundreds of adult films in the 70s and 80s before he directed. Oh, before um, he got behind the camera. He's really got, really got a passion for his trade. He's like a footballer who becomes a manager. Yeah, and he, um, he had brief success as an actor in mainstream films before becoming a porn actor-director. He played Peter in Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> and in 1982, he was caught smuggling cocaine into the US from South America and spent a year in prison. That is the most 80s thing ever, a porn star smuggling coke in the 80s. Yeah. Uh, I bet birth- he had a fucking epic moustache when he was doing that and fucking massive fuck-off sunglasses. He probably did. Uh, happy birthday to one of my favourite authors, Nick Hornby, who also has uh, delved in screenwriting with films like Brooklyn and An Education. He also wrote a um, fantastic book, uh, Fever Pitch, which got turned into two films, but the best of the two being obviously the one that's about... The Arsenal uh, one. Arsenal with Colin Firth um, and uh, Mark Strong's actually in that as well. Um, oh, really? Cool. Yeah, really fun film and... Um, uh, yeah, that, that, that I really like Nick Hornby. Mm. Um, happy birthday to Anne Shirley, who played uh, Anne Grail in Murder, My Sweet. Yes, yes, yes. Murder, My Sweet is one of my very favourite films. Mm. Uh, it is such a great film noir. It's like someone has set out to do... It's like if you were just, if you were making the essential quintessential film noir movie, I think Murder My Sweet, directed by Edward Dimitrik, I believe. I think it was is, directed by is Edward is just the the essence. It's like the you know the capo di tutti capi of 
film noir. It's got everything. Femme fatales, mood lighting, you know, lots of funny, like, camera effects going on. Uh, Mike Mazurki plays as heavy, you know. It's a, and it's a great story. And, like Raymond Charlie, totally confusing. I have no idea what's going on at any point. I know this might be quite controversial, but I kind of prefer that to The Big Sleep. Same. Happy birthday to uh, Kitchen Sink uh, British film director Lindsay Anderson, who started off making a lot of short documentaries and short films. And then his first film was a film with Richard Harris, came out in 1963, was called This Sporting Life. And I've only seen one of his films, and that is the film If, which uh, was the debut uh, film for Malcolm McDowell. So it was. It was a very, very... It's actually a really good film. And from someone who went to boarding school, I actually really liked it because it makes fun of that whole aspect. And also just, you know, attacking, you know, culture, the, the, you know, the upper class. It's like, a, it's like a real rebellious kind of film, but done, but done in a very satirical way. Like, it's not meant... It's, it's so, like, unrealistic, but it's, it's, it's very funny. Like, the ideas about it is, is really good. Happy birthday to... Uh, this guy was actually quite interesting, actually. This guy is Signor Vences. And he was probably one of the... Senor Vences, Senor Vences. I have and, come to save the village from the bandits. And he was, uh, he was, pro- he was a Spanish-born uh, ventriloquist. And <laughs> really, was yeah, he, he was Spanish, was he? Senor Vences. And he was. I thought, I thought he was from Poland. And he was, um, he was uh, one of the highest-paid vaudeville acts in the world, and he became hugely popular with American TV audiences, and was also a nightclub favorite. You know, they used to have ventriloquists on the radio, did they? Yeah, that's literally... I, don't, I can't remember which one, but there's one... Was, that is the single stupidest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. And uh, along with... Uh, I hate ventriloquists. Yeah, they're freaky. Just, yeah, just FYI. I think it's a total ridiculous... It's like... We know your doll isn't talking. This is yeah. stupid. He, along with George Burns and Bob Hope, guest starred on The Muppet Show, and all, and all three of them lived to be 100 years old. Senor Vences, I am not talking. My doll is talking. <laughs> uh, this is something that we've never done before on the uh, birthdays. We're going on to page three. Uh, happy birthday to Jan Hammer, who um, was, uh, he's a com- uh, music composer, and he was firmly rooted in the fundamentals of classical jazz and rock, but used it a lot of uh, future ele- electronic synthesized sound. And he's most famous for... Uh, most of the music from the Miami Vice TV show. Oh my God. So it's like peak 80s cop show music. Pretty much, yeah. Actually, that's more like... Happy birthday to Italian uh, cinematographer Carlo Di Palma. And um, he ha- was... Uh, worked with a, with two uh, very famous directors. Uh, wh- one of which was Michelangelo and Antonio Antonioni. 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 And also another director, an American director, who he worked with for ten years in a row. Can you guess who it was? Coppola. No. Scorsese. No. Spielberg. Think more neurotic. Woody Allen. Yes. Ah. He uh, started direct, He started working, uh, collaborating with him on uh, Hannah and Her Sisters and then went on to do Radio Days, September, Alice, Shadows and Fog, Husband and Wives, Manhattan Murder Mystery, Bullets Over Broadway, uh, Don't Drink the Water, which I think was a TV movie of Woody Allen's, Mighty Aphrodite, 
Everyone Says I Love You, which was Woody Allen's musical film, and Deconstructing Harry was his last one that he did with him. It's fair to say, Woody Allen, for all, you know, say what you like about him, he's made a lot of movies. He has made a lot of movies, and his uh, newest film... Some of them are even quite good. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think the thing about Carlo Di Palma, he has worked on sort of the, sort of the more lesser known, like the l- not as popular Woody Allen films. Like I've seen quite a few of them and some of them are pretty good and some of them are like, okay, like they're watchable. But I think towards like the 90s, that's where he's, his star status went up and down a little bit, like the quality that of films. Fluctuate. Yeah. I, I think like for most of his career, like in his early career, he worked a lot with Gordon Willis, the famous cinematographer on The Godfather. Oh, right. And I think his new film, Cafe Society, with Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart, is opening the Cannes Film Festival this year. I don't much. I don't think very much of Kristen Stewart's acting ability, to tell you the truth. Mm. She's a bit one note for me. Yeah, Jesse Eisenberg is a little bit mixed with me sometimes. Yeah. Funny story. Bruce Willis was actually going to be in the new Woody Allen film. Why didn't he get sacked? Uh, well, it was either he got sacked because he couldn't uh, uh, memorize the dialogue or he had to leave due to his commitments with uh, being on Broadway and doing Misery. And when he was doing Misery, he had a really big earpiece with someone uh, giving him his lines. And Is he all right? Because he's not that old. Like no, but it's just like, it's just, it's just, I don't know. I've heard like stories about Bruce Willis where he's mainly from like stuff to do with Kevin Smith where he directed him in a film and apparently he was just like a real... Oh, we talked about that on the podcast, yeah. Yeah, and apparently he was just like a real bastard to work with a little bit. He sounds like a, a bit of a sort of deadly combination of a total douche nozzle and someone who might not be that clever. Yeah, and I think it's just, I mean, someone, I mean, I read a little bit of an article about it when he was starting doing the Broadway show, and and someone says, like, when you're on stage and you have, like, someone feeding your lines through an earpiece, you're not meant for Broadway. No, because that's not stage acting at all. No, but it's sort of, and also there's, like, breaks in between where someone, like, the person he's acting with says the line, and then there's, like, a big, long gap with someone reading the lines, too. Buffering. (laughs) Buffering. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean... I mean, say what you, I mean, I mean, I still am a fan, but it's just like if, like, I always thought to myself if I was if I wanted to make movies, and I was like, I want to work with Bruce Willis, and then after hearing all this, I'm like, I don't want to. Work You're really with bizarrely this. obsessed with Bruce Willis. You know, he's not that great at anything, uh, yeah. and also he's responsible for what partly responsible for the Armageddon. Not, not, not in the concept of the film. <laughs> in the concept, he's not one of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Uh, well, he might be. Who knows? <laughs> anyway. Anyone else? Has anyone else been born today? This is a very, very, very um, uh, wealthy very, day of uh, individuals. Um, there was a guy called Boomer. Huh? <laughs> Boomer Eason. He was a football player. Played for the played quarterback in the NFL for the Cincinnati. Oh, that's not fucking football. That's the sodding egg chasing that they got in the States. That's not football. <laughs> I thought it was idea. I was like, ah, Boomer Wilson used to play for Ipswich Town in the 1950s or something. Yeah, played well, and a, Boomer because when he kicked the ball, the goalkeeper boom. exploded. Um, uh, played quarterback for the Cincinnati Bengals and Bengals, and played uh, and also for the Phoenix Cardinals. <laughs> played quarterback for the Bengals. It's just another manic Monday night football, right? Um, I'm just gonna stop now. Yeah, I think it's pretty much become an eternal flame of Bengals puns. Oh yeah.
So anyway, that concludes another episode of the Holmes Movies Podcast. That is episode 33. Really? Yeah. Are we in season two now, now that we've got a year? Should we call it season two? Or, or, or does that have, do we have seasons? I don't even think pod, most podcasts even have seasons. So we could just, well, maybe we, when each episode is a season. So actually we're in season 33. We're one of the longest running podcasts. We're longer than. <laughs> Based the, on seasons. <laughs> we're longer than the Simpsons. Suck it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you very much for listening to another episode. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Podomatic. Uh, do subscribe and follow the podcast. And if you uh, would, uh, it's, I, I'm not forcing you to, but I would generally would like I'll it. force you. I'll come around to your house and put a, with Luca Brasi, and we'll hold a gun to your head. And then, you know, and either your brains or your five-star review will be on the computer screen. What Adam said. Uh, we, uh, if you would like to leave us a five-star review on iTunes, that would be great because then it uh, ups our sort of, like, people, it give, makes us a little bit more noticeable on iTunes. Um, you can find me on uh, Twitter as well, at Fabricius91, F-A-B-R-I-C-I-U-S-9-1. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter as well. I'm uh, the Brixton Dane. Um, I'm on Instagram as well, adam.h.f.homes. And, um, I mean... Come along, look at pictures of food and retweets of stuff that more clever people have written. Smile on the brothers and everybody get together. Good heavens. We should go. Uh, I've been Anders Holmes. And I am Adam Holmes, far away in Maori, England. Uh, have a good day. Have a good day.